0: Welcome to Grace Church Resources. This is the home of the teaching ministry of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire. Here you will find weekly sermons, special teaching series, testimonies, and much more. If you haven't already subscribed, we encourage you to do so so you will be notified when we post new material. We trust these resources will be a supplement to your regular involvement in a local church wherever you may be, and that by His grace and for His glory, you are looking more like Jesus every day. George Herbert uh, wrote a poem entitled The Pulley. And in this poem, the subject matter is in regard to the restlessness of man. And it reads like this When God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made away, way, then flowed beauty, wisdom, honor, and pleasure, and when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him back to my breast. Ecclesiastes 3.11 states the biblical principle for that poem. It says that God made everything beautiful in its time, And he also put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out totally what God has done from beginning to end. This eternity which exists in every heart is what makes us tick. And what it means is that every person on the face of the earth has a built-in emptiness, a built-in understanding that there is someone or something beyond this earth that brings it meaning. Now, granted, they may not search in the right avenue. In fact, Scripture tells us that no one searches after God. And so we're all, the whole world is in a quest for something to fulfill that ache within us. We live our whole lives trying to fill that ache, and it is spent in seeking satisfaction. To some, it involves the pursuit of leisure time and vacations, uh, great accomplishments, uh, a search after sports or drugs or uh, human achievement, pursuit of excellence. In all of them, there is this insatiable longing for something they haven't achieved yet. And this is what caused C.S. Lewis to say, that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Indeed, we were made for another world. That is why the Sermon on the Mount is so endearing and so powerful, because it understands us. It describes the core of our beliefs. And today's beatitude is no different. It will explain the nature of the hunger and thirst that is within us, but then describes the proper object and the reward for it. So let us look at the nature of hunger and thirst. It says, verse 6 of Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Once more, we are confronted with a paradox here. How can you who is hungry and thirsty be happy? How can those who are starving said to be satisfied? It doesn't make sense. Now, the nature of this beatitude is spiritual, as all the rest of the, the ones in Matthew 5 However, understanding the physical side of hunger and thirst may indeed help us to understand the spiritual parallel as well. Physical hunger and thirst are the two greatest motivations in the human heart. When you wake up in the morning and you feel that nasty ache, the first thing you do, if you're a morning person, is go to the cupboard or the refrigerator to find something to break the fast, to to break the hunger. And if you have no food in your house, then you would go out hunting for it. And if you couldn't hunt for it, you would find a job to accumulate money so that you could purchase it. In essence, in a reductionist view, our jobs are simply so that we can fill our bellies. We might enjoy our work, but ultimately, the reason why we work is because we know we have to eat. Is the primary motivation of our lives. Now, water may be more readily available, especially in our continent, and you might not have to work so hard for it. But in many ways, it's more elemental than food. You can't live very long without water, maybe three days. Food, you can go for 40, some of you a little more, I don't know. But we need water, and that thirst drives us. And though most of us don't know what it is like to to starve or to thirst for very long, we do sense that this is describing a condition, a spiritual condition, that demands to be met. Spiritual hunger and thirst is a drive or an impulse that insists on being fulfilled and lest we die. It possesses our whole being, and the physical analogy obviously speaks of our inner longing or passion for something. It describes a force within our soul that must be satisfied or we can't live. It's what makes us tick. It, what describes, it describes our behavior, why we behave the way we do. And we know that hunger can be a very painful thing and when it is unsatisfied it drives us to do uh, Illegal things, stealing. The tense of the participles in this verse describing spiritual hunger and thirst are in the present tense. It says, those who are hungering and those who are thirsting. This indicates that this condition is an ongoing manner of life that we are supposed to be constantly hungering and thirsting. And this hunger and thirst, this unquenchable desire to be fulfilled, will exhibit itself in all manner of illicit ways if it does not have the proper object. All hunger and thirst has an object. On the physical realm, most of us prefer food. Uh, Recently on an episode of Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, I watched a woman uh, who hungered after dirt She lived for years on five pounds of dirt a day. Not just any ordinary road dirt. It was good, fine gravel, uh, sand. It actually looked pretty good in the way she was eating it, but five pounds a day. Now, I don't think that's normal. Um, She must have had the cleanest gizzard of anyone around, but uh, she had an object for her hunger, And so we are introduced next in verse 6 to the object of the spiritual hunger and thirst, and it is clearly righteousness. That which is the sole ambition of our soul is a thirst and a hunger for rightness, for righteousness. If there is no desire for rightness within our being, then there is no spiritual life. In the same way that if there is no physical hunger in a person, then they're probably dead. So there needs to be a spiritual hunger for rightness or we are not a kingdom citizen. And we need to evaluate that. We're not spiritually alive. And so the nature of this righteousness, how it is defined, is found in Matthew itself. And it is, in short, the desire to follow God's will and to be free from the sin which gets in our way from a proper relationship with God. A kingdom citizen recognizes that sin separates us from God, and so we desire to be right with him. Now, there are two kinds of righteousness in Scripture. Paul represents one, but Paul is not on the scene yet, and most readers would not understand his understanding of it. Paul teaches that there is a righteousness that is imputed or placed upon us, that because we had no personal righteousness, God had to place Christ's righteousness on us in salvation, so that when God looks down upon us, he sees us as Christ. But there is another kind of righteousness, which is what Matthew is speaking of here, and it is represented by an ongoing passion and a a manner of life in which we seek to become as righteous as God sees us in salvation. And we can see this definition in, in the Sermon on the Mount itself, if you'll note back in verse 3, that the first four Beatitudes end with a description of righteousness. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the more, those who mourn, blessed are the gentle because they will thirst for righteousness, but then the next four also end with righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of their righteousness. So the first three Beatitudes describe how a person gets to the point of seeking righteousness. They realize that they were poor in spirit, that they were bankrupt before God, and they cried and mourned over it, And they did not take things in their own hand. They were meek. And so they thirsted for righteousness. Now, once you receive righteousness, you then become merciful and pure. And you become a peacemaker. And because of those things, verse 10 says, you get persecuted for your righteousness. So righteousness, in some sense, is the way you live. It describes a person who is merciful and pure and a peacemaker. It is an outward demonstration of your inward purity. In fact, chapter 6 and verse 1 of Matthew uh, underscores this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So righteousness is a practice. It is a way of life. And so it describes the holiness of an individual person. As we grow in him, we become increasingly sick and tired of the sin in the world and sick and tired of the sin which still remains within us. A proper understanding of sanctification is that God dealt with the guilt of sin through the cross and he is dealing with the power of sin right now in our daily lives and someday he will deal with the presence of sin and we will be taken from it. And so sanctification includes all those things, but primarily, most of the time, sanctification refers to this time that we live on this earth in which we are systematically, hopefully, becoming more like Christ day by day. And that's what thirsting and hungering is all about. It is to become, a desire to become what God sees us as in his Son. It is to desire to be like the Lord. And if only everyone had this thirst and hunger for righteousness, there would be no war. There would be no turmoil. Things would be perfect. But you see, that is why the gospel is so important and why we as a church must make sure that that remains our purpose, the preaching of the gospel, and that we not let it be replaced by any noble cause out there. You see, our purpose for existence as a church is not to feed the poor, is not to clothe the poor. It is not to change the government and make them have laws that reflect Christianity. Our purpose is to declare the gospel so that a group of people might be raised up from sin and brought together to worship God in purity. And the net result of that is that we will be people who want to help the poor and clothe them and feed them and change this world for Christ. But let us not get the, the cart before the horse. The way in which we have changed the world is by changing individuals, and only the gospel can do that. And so that needs to be forever our focus To raise up people who will thirst and hunger after righteousness. And this kind of hunger cannot be manipulated through programs or organization. True spiritual passion can only be fanned. It can't be created. Hungering after righteousness describes a life that is consumed by doing God's will. Psalm 63.1 states the hunger of David who... Who said, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. That was one of the songs we sang today. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Paul, Paul's greatest desire in Philippians 3 was to know him and the power of his resurrection. John Darby wrote, To be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is God's heart for me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went in and ate with the pigs. When he was starving, he went home to his father. Do you have that kind of hunger? This is the test of the Christian heart. The beatitude strike at the very core of the Christian And if this description of hunger and thirst doesn't resonate with you, then you are not a kingdom citizen. And you need to go back to the first beatitude of seeing yourself as poor in spirit. So here the beatitudes have moved from the negative to the positive. In the past, they have looked at our spiritual lack, that we are poor in spirit, and that we are are worthy of nothing but crying. And and that we cannot take things in our own hands. We should be meek. But now the emphasis is upon the positive ways of filling that void, and it is through seeking righteousness. This is the cure for the spiritual state. The only blessed people in the world are those who seek for righteousness. This is so important, people. Everyone seeks happiness. Our own Declaration of Independence declares that it is the right of all people to pursue happiness, yet they were intelligent enough not to say that they were guaranteeing happiness because they know that everyone has different ways in which they pursue it, and it often leads to frustration because that's the problem. They are seeking for happiness, and the only way to get happiness is to seek for righteousness. Modern Christians even tend to do the same thing in a roundabout way. They are seeking for an experience or a feeling or, in short, happiness. And therefore, they float from conference to conference and place to place trying to to get that feeling, that experience, and they never quite find it totally because they aren't searching for righteousness. They're seeking for happiness. This leads us to the reward for hunger and thirst found there in verse 6. It is that they shall be satisfied. As with all the Beatitudes, there is a blessing or a reward. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. The word is cortazo, and it means to feed or to fatten, and is, is the word for grass, It was commonly used to describe well-fed cattle. And in the spiritual realm, therefore, we see the portrait of a contented soul, satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst will be completely satisfied. Now, I know it sounds impossible. How can you be in a continuing state of hunger and thirst and yet at the same time be satisfied? In a sense, that's the way it is with food. Those of you who are chocoholics, I understand that you crave for such things. uh, I'm told. But that may be a good illustration in the sense that as you hunger for it and you get it, there is that momentary uh, satisfaction, that it, it does fill you. And in fact, it's that satisfaction that leads you to desire it again the next time. So it is on the spiritual plane as well. Psalm 107.9 says that he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. And yet David goes on in that the more he was satisfied with God, he says in Psalm 119.20, my soul is crushed with longing after thine ordinances. Isaiah says in 26 9, at night my soul longs for you. My spirit seeks you diligently. Do you have that understanding that the more God meets you, the more you want him? It doesn't disqualify the satisfaction of the previous time, it just makes the next one even sweeter. But the difference with this kind of addiction is that you never go downhill. It always gets better and never gets worse. And it's the kind of addiction that God wants us to have. It becomes a lifestyle. And so Paul describes his own passion in Philippians 3.13. He says, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but I'm telling you what, I'm forgetting what has gone behind and I'm aiming towards that mark. You can see his passion aiming towards that goal. He knows he hasn't arrived and yet that makes him want it all the more. And then he says in verse 15, let us therefore, as many as have arrived, or as many as are perfect, live this way. Let us keep pressing on until we attain what we have already attained. It's paradoxical, I know. We are called to live out practically what God has made us positionally. That's what this life is all about. And so we are people who hunger and thirst. And are satisfied all at the same time. The more he satisfies us, the more we want to know him, and we never rest upon past decisions. We are in a constant state of growth. Now how does this thirst surface? Are you blessed? Better believe you are. Do you have spiritual joy? Do you have a joy that is not dependent upon circumstance? That no matter what happens to you, you have this inner fortitude and strength and joy? That is how it surfaces. Are you aware of all the things that we are endowed with? Are you appalled at your own self-righteousness and sick and tired of it? If we are truly seeking righteousness, then it will become increasingly clear in our lives that we don't want anything to do with unrighteousness. Not only that, we even tire of those things which aren't wrong in and of themselves, but are just plain waste of time. Things that act like a diet repressive. That make us not hunger for things we ought to hunger for. A life of thirst and hunger causes us to discipline ourselves in a way that we budget our time. You have heard it said that we, we all do what we really want to do. We find the time for it. And that is true, isn't it? There's no Bible verse to back it, but that is a, a, a truth. And if it is true that we exist as a church to learn how to seek after God's righteousness as a group then it only stands to reason that we should hunger and thirst to be together more, not less. The older you become as a Christian, the more important it should be to fellowship together. It shouldn't wane in our life. It should increase. We should desire the scripture like newborn babes desire milk, born drinking. The natural consequence of hearing the Word is that we desire a deeper communication with God and we should be praying more and talking with our Lord. All of this leads to an insatiable desire to know God and and to, to be like Christ. No other desire, no other pursuit will bring the joy that this one will. If you truly hunger, you will be satisfied. During the liberation of Palestine in World War 1, a combined force of British, Australian, and New Zealand soldiers were pursuing the Turks as they retreated across the desert and as the allied troops moved northward past Beersheba, they began to outdistance the camel trains that carried their water and they ran out and yet decided to keep going forward to pursue the enemy. Their mouths got dry, their heads ached, and they became dizzy and faint, and their eyes became bloodshot, their lips swelled up, turned purple, and they started seeing mirages, and hundreds of them started to die of thirst. They knew if they didn't make the wells of Sharia by nightfall that thousands more would be dead, and so they pushed on to conquer the Turks, which they did. And as they took over the wells, water was distributed from the great stone cisterns. But the more able-bodied and the healthy were not allowed to drink at first. Only the sick and the wounded and those who were going to be on duty first got to drink. So that there were men that literally had to wait over four hours to have a drink after many days of nothing. Just 20 feet away was the answer to their thirst and they couldn't get it. One of the officers was a believer, and he reported, I believe that we all learned our first Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Shariah Wells. If such were the power of our thirst for God, for righteousness, and for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich, in the fruit of the Spirit, would we be? That is my prayer for us this year as a body, that we would develop that hunger and that thirst in a deeper way, that we would never be totally satisfied as he satisfies us each day. Let us pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us in this way. We know that you are there and that you've planted that desire in us to know you. May we be able to see the false from the true. May we be able to put aside those things which are a waste of time, which keep us from that true fulfillment that only you can give as we seek that which is right and that which is holy. May we as a church be able to do that, Thank you for challenging us. Give us the strength and the power. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. We trust this resource was a blessing to you. You might also be interested in our other podcast, Grounding Our Faith, which is an interview-style conversation with staff, church leaders, and members about issues of theology and everyday faith. Grace Church Resources and Grounding Our Faith are both ministries of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire.